2: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
3: And this is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet. It's been another incredible week. I mean that in the literal sense. Boris Johnson was carted into intensive care. The Prime Minister of Britain was on an oxygen tube. And just a couple of days after being released from the ICU, he's at checkers and fit enough to give a remarkable address to the country, to the world, on his prime ministerial broadcast this week. I, for one, want to say how glad I was to see him looking so healthy in the circumstances, a remarkable recovery. I really feared for the worst when he went into the ICU. But he's shown that he's made of stern stuff. He's also shown that he's capable of uh, epiphany. His epiphany seems to have included a remarkable transformation in his attitude to the National Health Service, to doctors, and especially perhaps to nurses. That's especially remarkable because I saw him along with other Conservative MPs cheering to the rafters in the House of Commons when they defeated a motion to increase the pay of National Health Service workers, including the very nurses that saved Boris Johnson's life. Now, it is possible in life for people to make miraculous recoveries. Our own director is living proof of that. He's back at work. Hail and hearty this very day. His was a quick recovery too. So it is possible and I cast no aspersions. It's also possible, especially I should say this, on Easter Sunday, it is possible for sinners to repent. Certainly every word that Boris Johnson said in his broadcast today was true, but every word of it will be cut out and kept. In fact, it will be nailed to a lot of walls, including my own, and every word of it will be thrown back in his face if he does not now do the logical thing of doing right by our National Health Service. That means, Prime Minister, that you have to pay them fairly what you now know that they are worth. That means, Prime Minister, that you need to fund the service in which they work adequately. That means, Prime Minister, that you have to equip and protect them safely as they continue to battle with this unseen enemy of which you spoke today. It is necessary, Prime Minister, for you to take that precious heart of the nation as you described it, back wholly into public ownership into the public sector it is time for you to kick the money changers out of the temple to overturn their tables to send richard branson and the other buccaneers packing and make sure that our nhs is in wholly public hands and one last thing as i pioneered here last week and which is now the official policy of Her Majesty's opposition, uh, it would seem you need to cancel the student debt of every employee in the National Health Service. If you did those things, Prime Minister, the country would clap you on Thursday along with the National Health Service workers. If you do these things, then people will love you, actually. But if you don't do them, and if you fall far short of doing them, then many people are going to consider you one of the largest walking hypocrites ever to stroll the highways and byways of this green and pleasant land. Mind you, Boris Johnson would never have been the Prime Minister, and Theresa May would have been the briefest, Prime Minister in history if it were not for the active sabotage by the parliamentary Labour Party and by the upper and middle and lower echelons of the Labour Party's headquarters staff in the run-up to the general election of 2017. Jeremy Corbyn, failed to become our Prime Minister on that occasion, despite achieving 40% of the vote, despite lifting the Labour vote by a greater number of votes than any Labour leader ever since Clement Attlee in the Labour landslide of 1945. Jeremy Corbyn fell just under 2,500 votes short of achieving a parliamentary majority. That's all. 2,370 or so. If these had fallen in the right constituencies, Boris Johnson would never have been the Prime Minister. Jeremy Corbyn would have now been into his third year as Prime Minister of Great Britain. How do I know all this? Well, I've always known it. And so have many of you, but I've never been able to prove it before, but now I can. Because the leaked report, copious, compendious, encyclopedic report from the Labour Party itself, designed to be handed to the Equal Rights and Human Rights Commission, ECHRC, this report, which has now been suppressed by the new New Labour leadership, Sarkir Starmer et al., is the most obscene publication that I have ever read. I have never quite read. In fact, I felt a rising sense of revulsion As I saw the WhatsApp group messages, as I saw the texts, as I saw the emails between the General Secretary of the Labour Party and directors of various departments in the Labour Party, actively sabotaging the Labour general election campaign, actively undermining their own party's chances of winning and their recoiling in horror when Labour began to catch up. They're recoiling in terror at the possibility that Corbyn might be in number 10, Downing Street, come Friday. I have read, seen, experienced a lot of things in my life, but I've never read anything quite like the suppressed report that Keir Starmer must publish. It must be published in full. And anyone who has a copy of it has a duty to history, to Labour, to the working class and to the people of this country to publish this report, which establishes inter alia that the anti-Semitism scandal in Labour was a wholly internally manufactured lie, one of the biggest lies in history, and that those members of the Labour Party's staff actively conspired, one with the other, both to inflate the scandal and to frustrate any attempt to resolve whatever problems had been thrown up on this track of anti-Semitism, it is confirmed beyond any contradiction that Jeremy Corbyn, far from being anti-Semitic, was struggling might and main in a way that none of his predecessors had done, and that the new General Secretary was struggling in a way that none of her predecessors had done to ensure that there was no stain of the foul poison of anti-Semitism to be found anywhere in the Labour Party. It is also established beyond contradiction that the whole thing was an attempt at a political assassination, an attempt which in the end was successful. Now, I hold no candle, fly no flag for Jeremy Corbyn. I am in a better position than most to know of his failings, shortcomings, and yes, betrayals. I'm a living example of Jeremy Corbyn's betrayals. But as I said, and I was the only person in the British media to say crystal clear, loudly, from the start, on television, on radio, on video, on the streets, in print. I told you, all of you, that this was a manufactured crisis. This was the weaponizing of one of the biggest lies in all history this was a slander against history a slander against posterity a slander against all that is good and holy i told you that i almost lost my job for telling you that i told you it every week and i was the only one that was telling you it so i'm not here to praise jeremy corbyn heaven knows I'm not, but I am here to damn forever those that were ready to cheapen, to devalue, to coarsen the sacred duty of all people to fight racism and to fight anti-Semitism, arguably the most poisonous strain of racism, certainly in centuries one which cost six million Jews their lives and scarred the lives of those who miraculously escaped the gas chambers and the concentration camps. For anyone to use the shrouds of those dead souls, for anyone to use the ancient and historic suffering of the Jewish people just to bring down Jeremy Corbyn? Really, is that as low as you will go? And speaking of Sir Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandy, who've been out batting for the government today, they're supposed to be Her Majesty's opposition, but both Starmer and Nandy have been defending the government on television today. Both of them said that this crisis could not have been foreseen. But that is untrue. It was foreseen. It was entirely predictable. It was indeed predicted. But you didn't have to look in the crystal ball. You could look at the book, the book in China that was open since the 31st of december last year you could have done what china did and you could have had weeks and weeks of time in order to do it you could have saved thousands of lives in britain but the government did not it wasted those weeks it flirted with the eugenicist poison of herd immunity, where all of us will take it on the chin and the devil will take the hindmost. And by the hindmost, we mean your mother and father, grandmother and grandfather, elderly aunt and elderly uncle. And then it lurched to a lockdown that isn't a lockdown at all. Then it promised testing, which it has never delivered. Never delivered. Then it promised that the hardware, the ventilators, all the things that the NHS needed would be ordered, albeit from a vacuum cleaner manufacturer who'd never made a ventilator in his puff. But they never arrived. They said, Hancock said in print that we were well stocked with personal protection equipment, that we had no need for more masks, more aprons, more gowns, but we did. And then they promised that they'd ordered them, but they've only just arrived on Friday. They claim I'll wait myself to see if that claim is any more true than the previous claims. But in any case, what they claim that they have secured is not sufficient even for the NHS and it's completely missing for transport workers who are now dying like flies as a result of a lockdown that isn't a lockdown, that leaves buses and tube trains packed like sardines the passengers no doubt infecting each other and without doubt infecting and killing our transport workers i was in a shop yesterday none of the staff had masks nobody seems to have masks unless like me you've tracked a hundred pharmacies and had the means to pay through the nose in order to buy them. No testing, no PPE, not enough ventilators, not enough intensive care beds. Isn't that what the leaders of Britain's opposition should be saying? Shouldn't the leaders of Her Majesty's opposition be opposing in order to keep ministers and government on its toes? You would have thought so. And lastly, Bernie Sanders has thrown in the towel again. Like the grand old Duke of York, though with far more than 10,000 men, he marched them up to the top of the hill and he marched them down again. Last time, it might have been forgivable. Hillary Clinton was a formidable political operator, Donald Trump, an unknown quantity, and in any case, not expected to win. But to march them down the hill again this time, Bernie, and expect your supporters to vote for creepy, sleepy Joe Biden, a man accused of rape, is asking too much. They will not do it, You just guaranteed that Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States, just as Hillary Clinton guaranteed it on the ballot paper last time.
4: In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer.
3: now if uh, america had a left-wing royal family my first guest would definitely be a member of it robbie martin is the brother of the wonderful abby martin and robbie is pretty wonderful himself he's co-host of media roots radio he's a filmmaker and i'm glad to say he joins us now on the mother of all talk shows robbie a great pleasure to see you in the flesh i hope one day to shake your hand or at least bump your elbow. Uh, Let's uh, review the scene, shall we, in the United States. Let's start with the virus. It seems to be devastating the United States, health and wealth. It seems to be devastating the economy and it seems to be killing a gigantic number of people. Survey that scene for us, if you will.
6: Yeah, it's it's quite a a, a nightmare scenario, George. Um, and thank you for having me on your program. It's it's an honor. Um, it's it, it can't possibly be put into words how terrible this situation is. But I'll try. Um, initially, the the biggest problem here, George, was that the U.S. government was doing all they could, including the CDC, to cover up and to sort of brush under the rug that COVID-19 had already you know broken out in Seattle. And it basically cost valuable amounts of time how much people were dragging their feet, government officials, even just governors. This blame cannot all go to Trump, even though he deserves quite a bit of it. Um, You see quite a disparity between, for example, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, um, on the same day that Gavin Newsom said that we should shelter in place in California, that this was very dangerous. You know, we need to mitigate the spread of this. Bill de Blasio was encouraging people to go to the movies. So it's not just Trump's fault, because you also have all these state governors and these you know, different municipalities all disagreeing with each other. And so it almost, in, in some ways, was complete chaos in terms of the instructions about what we're supposed to do as a society. <laughs> to prepare for this. So I guess, you know, you can make the argument that some of these European countries, they have a more, you know, top-down approach, uh, less fragmentation, so they're able to implement these policies more quickly. So that was a big part of the problem here. But then another problem, George, was the lack of available testing. Um, Per million people, the U.S., for weeks, uh, when this outbreak first started, had the lowest amount per million people in terms of testing available. And now that we have so much testing going on, what we have discovered is, oops, we actually have by far the most cases in the world. And now it seems like we're actually, you know, I haven't checked the, the recent stats, but it seems like we're getting close to having the most deaths uh, in the world, too. Maybe we've already surpassed it, actually. No, so. I think
3: you're just uh, just behind Italy. You'll, you'll pass it this week for sure.
6: Oh, great. OK, well, <laughs> that's that's uh, that's great news. So, yeah, the, I mean, things are. They almost couldn't be worse than they are right now. And, you know, in terms of the what's going to happen next, I mean, I guess the only thing we could hope for is that some of this social distancing that's been put in place and in some states was put in place way too late, you know, will mitigate the spread of this. Um, that's my best hope. In California, it seems as if it actually has had pretty a pretty big impact in terms of the, you know, what they say, flattening the curve. Um, I don't want to be too optimistic, but uh, it seems like states like California have, you know, by acting more quickly, have actually, um, you know, kind of gotten ahead of the curve of this. So uh, I think that's a good sign.
3: Now, what about the economy, uh, Robbie? Uh, More people are unemployed uh, in the United States now. Uh, I think the figure is now over 10 million people. Uh, it is predicted uh, that within a couple of weeks, uh, the rate of unemployment, the percentage of people unemployed in the United States will be greater uh, than it was in the Great Depression, uh, which was a figure of 25%. We all know the pictures of the Great Depression, of tent cities, uh, of uh, soup kitchens, of the Dust Bowl and, and all of that. Um, how much... Are people aware and fearful of what the economic impact of this is going to be? And how is American society going to cope with that?
6: Well, it's such a depressing thought, George. And, and you're right about the numbers. I mean, I think somewhere that they're projecting somewhere within the range of 30% unemployment. Um, I think part of the problem is there's such an economic disparity in the United States that people who can hunker down right now during this and can shelter in place comfortably and, for example, can order their groceries delivery and don't have to, you know, tough it out and go out in the wilderness with the mask on and try to go grocery shopping, those people aren't going to feel uh, these things yet, or they haven't felt them yet. But they will, you know, eventually once they realize that 30% of the population is unemployed. I think right now the people that are feeling it the hardest are the people who've actually already lost their jobs. And, um, they're, you know, they're, like you said, 10 million people have already lost their jobs. That's a huge deal. And I think it's going to start making the people of higher privilege, higher income levels more aware over time. And it's going to be a really rude awakening for them once they realize that a lot of these, you know, service industry people they rely on, a lot of these businesses they rely on for their convenience are going to be closed after this. And that's you know just the tip of the iceberg. Um, having that much mass unemployment, you know, will cause all these other terrible societal ripple effects, including George, one that I'm personally really concerned about is some kind of uh, desperate position the United States gets in where it feels that the need to go to war again in some kind of very show-offy, you know, sort of patriotic, we need to rally together as a society and come out of this great recession, you know, with some kind of nationalistic, patriotic outburst. Um, so that's where my mind is going in terms of the well, that, recession. That's obviously
3: yeah. one of the directions in which it could go. And another is, an outbreak of mass uh, criminality. Uh, You know, there are always poor and desperate people uh, in the U.S. and in any society. Uh, But when there's millions of poor and desperate people, uh, those that have will have to worry that those that have not uh, will be coming to get them, will be coming to take from them.
6: Well, yeah, there's an element of I mean, that's one of the things that we you know that differs uh, the united states from a lot of these other countries around the world is that we have the highest rate of um, people incarcerated in prisons of our own population here so that's definitely a factor and it's also not helped by the fact that uh, we don't have any kind of form of universal basic income or any sort of surplus package, you know, going directly to people uh, who are suffering right now. And it's, you know, they're they're giving out stimulus checks, but it's a pittance, really, and um, and hasn't come yet. There's people in desperate need right now. So yeah, as long as we have those factors in place, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, a destabilization. Of American society, I think is definitely in the cards, and you know even on on some level, this um, Abby and I were discussing this concept of sort of global unrest. You know, the the elites and the powers that be have been, you know, hedging on this idea of a form of global unrest, or not just regional collapse like in the United States, but some f- form of mass global collapse. And this could be another situation that they could take advantage of you know, in, that, in that same way, um, you know, sort of like a disaster capitalism, board, but for the globe. And then in, in addition to that, draconian laws uh, you know, put in place that'll just restrict people's rights even more and take away people's privacy, as we're seeing with these app you know, suggestions um, in the United States on how to track people with the virus to see if they're sick or not.
3: Mind you, uh, all is not lost. We've got Joe Biden. Um, the, uh, The Democrats have now effectively picked Joe Biden. I'd like your views, please, on whether it is really credible that come November it'll be his name on the ballot paper. The more I see of him, the more I hear of him, the more I suspect that somehow, I don't know how, somehow someone else will be parachuted into his place. Your views on that, please, Robbie.
6: That's an interesting theory, George. I, I mean, I could see why he would think that. I mean, he does seem to be exhibiting very real signs of cognitive decline in ways that I have not seen any other person running for the presidency exhibit. So that alone, I, I, I think that's possible. I don't know who the hell it would be. People are saying it's gonna be Cuomo. I don't think that's gonna happen, but you know, I think one you know one factor of this is will the election be delayed the general election and from what I understand about that is the president himself cannot actually authorize that it would have to be the congress uh, you know pushing some kind of legislation through so we it would be so from what we understand it would be really difficult to actually move the general election date but in terms of Joe Biden I mean there's no way he's going to win against Donald Trump and there has to be establishment Democrats who are very high up you know, in the party, in the DNC, who absolutely know that to be the case. So the question then becomes, are they actually kind of agreeing to take the hit this time and allowing Donald Trump to essentially get another four years just so they don't have to allow someone like Bernie to take the nomination? Um, it seems, to, to me, that seems like the play, George, but what you're saying is also possible. I just, I'm trying to think of who it could be and you know, I don't want to think it would be Hillary. That sounds like a Twilight Zone kind of scenario, but you know, people have been rumor, pushing out rumors that she could still run again. Um, I don't know, I, I have no idea who it would be, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if they did that, but I, st- I think whoever they would replace Biden with at this point will lose against Trump, because the only chance, I think, for Trump getting out of this election was was this situation. How is he going to handle the COVID-19 pandemic? That could have been a referendum on him. And I think that opportunity has already passed. And I don't think that that ultimately that's what it's going to be. I think that he's already effectively spun it so that he looks great again during this process. I'm not very hopeful, George. I think we're we're looking for another four years of Trump, towards another four years of
3: Trump. I think you're probably right on that. Robbie Martin, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Why is the U.K. government not counting out-of-hospital virus deaths? Is it A? too politically damaging, B, protecting the public, or C, don't have the figures. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. Why is the UK government not counting out of hospital virus deaths? A, too politically damaging, B, protecting the public, C, don't have the figures. Paul says, good to have you back. My weekly chance to listen to something other than the usual mainstream media take on this whole COVID-19 situation. Now parents of sick children are being asked to sign do not resuscitates as well as elderly patients. And uh, Tony says, we need to know how many have died from coronavirus and how many have died with coronavirus. Two different things. Why are they different, uh, Tony? I'm uh, really puzzled at how you conspiracy theorists, libertarian, ultra-left, anarchistic maniacs think. If I have cancer and walk in front of a train, what killed me, the train or the cancer? There are plenty of people, I know some of them, living with underlying health conditions. There are plenty of people who might have died in six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, maybe even 36 months, but who catch the coronavirus and die. So what killed them? The underlying condition from which they would not have died if they had not caught the coronavirus or the coronavirus. Why are you obfuscating? Why this fake dichotomy that people like you and others that I've worked with and I'm embarrassed now to have had even on my own show. I've had to block them. I want nothing more to do with them. I'm embarrassed at some of the things I read, particularly on the comments on YouTube. To take a half an hour reading the comments on my YouTube broadcasts is to wander into Bellevue. It's to wander into Broadmoor, down the aisles and around the beds of Ward 5. This is madness. All around us you can see nurses weeping as they come off their shift. Doctors dying on the front line. Your neighbors dying. Your relatives dying all around you all around the world. Who is it that's lying, Tony? Boris Johnson, maybe. Tony Hancock, maybe. Are the Russians also lying? Are the Chinese also lying? Is Dr. Ranjit Brar, a communist, also lying? Is the World Health Organization lying? Get a grip of yourself, man. James says, call me cynical, but Mr. Johnson is the first patient in history to emerge from the ICU faster than he went in. Love the show, James. And uh, Connor in Belfast, an old friend. Uh, I'd like to hear what you think of Robin Swan, our health minister's repeated call for the British Army to come to the north of Ireland and help with the current crisis. Personally, as a construction worker, there are enough self-employed of us out of work who could do this work. Very sensitive request for Mr. Swan to call. Well, that would seem to me an unnecessarily provocative act, and I don't think it will happen. It is Easter Sunday, of course, and it would be remiss not to commemorate the heroes of the Easter Rising in Ireland in 1916. As Lenin put it, the blow struck by the Irish rebellion against the British Empire was many times more powerful than any similar act of rebellion in Africa or in Asia. It was not the first blow struck against the British Empire, but it was a most decisive one. It was a military failure, but it was the most gigantic political success. The uprising at the General Post Office in 1916 issued a proclamation for a united and independent sovereign Irish Republic. I was listening to some readings of it today. It still has the capacity, 104 years later, to stir the blood. At least my blood. One of the most sordid of the aspects of this current situation is that far from, as the United Nations asked, as the Pope has asked, as any sane person has asked, for all wars and conflicts at least to be suspended for the duration, for all acts of war uh, to be eschewed in favor of international cooperation as we battle to defeat an unseen, unseeable global behemoth of the coronavirus-19. But the United States has instead taken the opportunity to double down on its attempts to uh, uh, seek to destabilize and defeat to change the regimes in various countries, including countries that are in the vanguard of humanity in responding to the crisis. Cuba, for example, is now on even sharper uh, sanctions uh, than it was before the coronavirus began. Not least because anybody trying to buy uh, Cuba's uh, world-leading medical technology in the current climate, the United States has made clear uh, that anyone who buys from Cuba will be sanctioned Uh, by the United States, even ventilators are being blockaded in the time of the coronavirus. It's hard to believe, I know, but it's happening. It's happening in Iran, which for a time at least was one of the world's most affected places from the virus. It's happening in Venezuela, where so far, it's not such a crisis as it is in the United States, which is besieging it but that hasn't stopped the U.S. besieging it. They've stepped up their attempts to overthrow the government in Venezuela. Uh, the uh, war criminal Tony Blair has just had a meeting uh, with the impostor Juan Guaido. No social distancing there because, hey, there's an oil heist at stake. The two of them, thickest thieves, were shoulder to shoulder, as Tony always is with the worst people in the world. The United States has sent soldiers uh, to Colombia next door to Venezuela. It sent its warships uh, to the coast of Venezuela. It may be planning a war against Venezuela. As Robbie Martin said earlier, that might be a useful diversion from the travails at home. One man who charts all of these things with meticulous detail, style and panache is a former guest of ours and one of my heroes. He's Dan Kovalik, and he's on the line. Now, Dan, you've got a new book uh, called No More War, which is a good title, sums up what I've just been uh, saying. You're a human rights and labor rights lawyer. You're a professor, an author, and a filmmaker. Through your viewfinder, how does all that look?
2: yes well it is looking quite terrible and first i just want to thank you again for having me on george it's always a delight welcome um you know what you were summarizing is it should be shocking to people that during this crisis which is a worldwide crisis which is affecting nearly every country on earth and by the end will affect every country on earth the us in particular has decided to use the crisis as an opportunity to destabilize other countries to overthrow other governments and you know some of the aircraft carriers some of the warships for example that the u.s has now sent to the caribbean to the coast of venezuela we know some of these ships are now literally uh, virus incubators right um the fact that the u.s is sending troops to other countries means risking spreading this virus further even in allied countries you mentioned Colombia which is the closest ally of the U.S. in South America when we send troops to those countries we are risking spreading the virus and by the way most of the spread of the virus in Venezuela is now coming from the border uh, with Colombia as Venezuelans return uh, to Venezuela during this crisis and so It is the height of imperial hubris. It is the height of cruelty to be trying to use a pandemic to gain geopolitical advantage at this time. But that's exactly what's happening right now.
3: What about uh, Nicaragua? They seem to, as we discussed uh, on my other show, Sputnik, uh, they seem to have uh, rediscovered their ire against Nicaragua and the Sandinista government there, elected democratically elected government. Uh, What's going on there now?
2: Well, uh, things right now are quite stable. The virus has not gained a lot of ground in Nicaragua. They have an excellent health care system under the Sandinista government, which is in charge right now. But the U.S., again, has taken the opportunity to increase sanctions against that country during this pandemic. And sadly, human rights groups like Human Rights Watch have actually applauded the U.S. government for doing that. Um, and so we are jeopardizing the lives of Nicaraguans by these sanctions. will make it harder for Nicaragua to fight uh, this virus. Meanwhile, Nicaragua, uh, not surprisingly, has welcomed Cuban doctors to their country to hi- uh, f- help fight the pandemic. And the U.S. is upset about that as well, so Nicaragua can expect more uh, hostilities uh, during this time, even though in Central America they're doing the best job right now at containing the virus. Uh,
3: Of course, uh, Italy therefore uh, will be in the firing line because Italy's got Cuban doctors. There are Cuban doctors all over Europe. 26 countries have got Cuban doctors. The British Foreign Secretary just wrote a letter uh, to the president of Cuba hailing their act of outstanding solidarity in accepting uh, into their harbor uh, the British uh, cruise ship uh, that was full of infected people. Nobody else would take it, but Cuba took it. In a way, the malice towards Cuba is the most grotesque of all. 26 countries, Cuba sending doctors to, America, sending more and more sanctions on Cuba.
2: No, it's absolutely stunning what is happening. First of all, you mentioned Italy. Italy made it clear that the EU had abandoned them. They did nothing for them during this crisis. So Italy turned to the countries that would help them and that was Cuba, it was China, Uh, who willingly helped. Cuba is under now over 50, has been under sanctions by the US for over 50 years has been the victim of a crippling blockade by the US for over 50 years and yet they find the wherewithal to help these other countries it is awe-inspiring what Cuba is doing but again the US has decided it will make it harder for Cuba to do that work and to frankly to help their own people. There have been specific instances in which the U.S. has blocked medical supplies to Cuba during this pandemic. It is the height of cruelty, but Cuba does stand out as a shining example of what type of international solidarity we need at this very time. In fact, Pope Francis today called in St. Peter's Square for international solidarity and for the end of international sanctions during this time. And he was quite right to do it.
3: He was indeed. Uh, God save him and preserve him. Uh, now, uh, tell us about your, your book, No More War. Is it naive, this, uh, this call? How do we get to a situation of no more war?
2: Well, I would hope that during this time of crisis, we would learn about not only the futility of war, but frankly, the devastating nature of war, not only to those that we attack, but to ourselves. You know, uh, the fact that the US has spent trillions of dollars on these destructive and, and seemingly pointless wars in the Middle East has left the US crippled in its ability to fight this virus. And that's why we see the US, which had been ranked so high before this crisis as being this model uh, for healthcare, um, we see it unable to deal with the crisis. We see the numbers higher in the US than any country in the world. And those numbers will continue to go up. The numbers of those who are dying due uh, to this virus, And the fact that the U.S. spends trillions of dollars, the fact that the U.S. has money for bombs and for weapons, but doesn't have money for ventilators or even face masks. You have the president of the United States go on TV and tell the American people they should use T-shirts to make masks with because we don't have any. And why? Because all that money has gone out the door to fight wars. And I hope. Truly, the people will be educated by this moment.
3: Now, the great Oliver Stone, a man we both admire very much indeed, he's associated uh, with this book. Tell us.
2: Yes, well, he uh, has a great uh, quote on the front of the book, uh, talking about how this book cuts through the Orwellian lies that make so-called humanitarian intervention possible. Stone has been someone who has been writing and making films about the dangers of war and aggression uh for many years it should be pointed out pointed out that stone himself while greatly vilified by the mainstream media he actually quit yale to fight in vietnam and it was there where he was educated about what u.s war meant and in vietnam it meant killing women and children on a mass scale it meant destroying their forests and and their farms. And Stone has taken an interest in this book um, because he has seen firsthand uh, what war means.
3: Well, if it's good enough for Oliver Stone, it's good enough for me, where can people buy it, Professor?
2: Yes, well, they can get it on Amazon. Uh, They can get it at their local bookstores when those bookstores, of course, uh, open. Um, but many bookstores at least they can order from at this time um, And if people follow me on Facebook or Twitter hey, and they need a book I'll find a way to get them a book so fabulous uh, if for me. It's about spreading the message It's about fighting the war machine, uh, which we need to continue doing
3: Thank you very much indeed professor Dan Kovalik from the United States his new book no more war a must read Spring Morning Glory says, Britain and China scientists are working together to come up with more reliable and quick result testing kits for the public. Wish them success. And Pain says, China is a red herring. It's nonsense to blame a country for a virus. They live in a chemical fog of poison. And my old friend Tad Davidson says, I agree totally on reducing, if not totally eliminating, the power of the globalists and the corporations. It's badly needed. But how short of civil insurrection? That nearly happened in 1933 in the United States of America. I do worry about what will happen in America, not least because 100 million of them have got guns, and many of them, several guns. Ali Jones says, Why has Hancock not called out the billionaires, just like he did with the footballers? Dare not call out their party donors. It was a bit rich, if you'll forgive the pun, picking on working-class footballers for their extremely high level of wages at the top end of the game, not shared by those in the middle and at the lower ends of the game, whilst not asking the billionaires so far to pay a penny extra. L.A. Taylor says Bill Gates want everybody who is and isn't vaccinated. What's wrong with being vaccinated, L.A. Taylor? All oh, my children are vaccinated. I am vaccinated. What do you think Bill Gates, who as I understand it himself suffers from a terminal illness, what is it he's after? Is it more money? Actually, he gave most of his money away. Is it a longer life? How does it give him a longer life if a vaccine against the coronavirus is provided? Basil Fawlty says David Icke needs to be arrested. Atul Nayak says BBC is an outdated propaganda machine. Here, here to that. Caroline Flanagan says the UK is dysfunctional now. Uh, I'm looking uh, for Dr. Gerard Lyons, my next guest, but he is now available. Now, Dr. Gerard Lyons, one of the smartest men I've ever interviewed on my Sputnik show, and also, I think, here, on the moats. He's an economist. He's chief economic strategist at Net Wealth Investments, economic impact of coronavirus very much uppermost in his mind, as it will be in time in the minds of all of us. Uh, Dr Lyons, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, Just uh, survey the uh, economic scene for us, uh, will you? What is the principal damage? that will be done to the economy uh, by this virus, this pandemic?
7: Well, we have a global recession and pretty much the same impact has been felt in most economies, namely a slump in income and in spending. That's hit firms as well as individuals and has led to a slump in global trade. Now, China and the rest of East Asia was hit in January and February. Um, China has shown tentative signs of picking up in March, but still early to say it's fully past the worst. But what we've seen is that the US, the UK, and Western Europe have literally fallen off the edge of a cliff in March. That weakness is likely to continue through the second quarter. There is now a big policy response. So the hope is, and indeed my expectation is, that while Q3 will also be weak, we're likely to see some sort of recovery before the end of this year. So a global recession hitting hard now and likely to remain hard and tough for some months to come yet.
3: Let's start with the United States, uh, please. Uh, The uh, 17 million people uh, have applied for uh, welfare benefits in the United States this week. More than 10 million are unemployed. Uh, Many projections are uh, that the... Great Depression, 25% unemployment, that 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 figure will be surmounted. Uh, And on the principle that as we saw in the 1930s, when America catches cold, uh, the rest of the world uh, catches pneumonia, uh, what's the impact of the American economic downturn going to be?
7: Well, I think you're right to say that when the U.S., the world's biggest economy, is hit so hard, it has a global impact. What's happening at the moment is that even though China is past the worst, it seems, we've pretty much had a synchronized collapse in the advanced economies. Now, the good news, if one can call it that, is that the U.S. On, in policy terms have responded pretty aggressively and very quickly quickly. So even though that will not stop US unemployment rising significantly, and while that will not stop a US recession, at least the good news is that the US policy response has been pretty significant. I would tend to call the US response the three C, three U's rather, unconventional, it's been unlimited, particularly from the Federal Reserve, the central bank, and it's been pretty urgent. They've responded pretty well. But coming back to your question, George, there's no doubt that the US downturn, while obviously hitting the US hard, will reinforce the global downturn, particularly in the next three to four months.
3: Now, well, let's look at their their, their response, please, Gerard, because many people would say uh, helicoptering out $1,200 to every American uh, isn't gonna butter that many parsnips, and that the incredible bonanza that has been handed out to the corporations Uh, will will disappear into the mall. Uh, In what way do you think that response will protect the U.S. economy from the collapse in demand?
7: Okay, Uh, well, in terms of protect, the word I would use would be that it's trying to mitigate, that is, limit or offset the scale of the impact. The most impressive thing in particular, I think, in the U.S. has been the response of the U.S. Federal Reserve. Now, it has to be said In the wake of the global financial crisis a decade ago global central banks led by the americans basically became the shock absorber for the global economy they don't have much room for maneuver left as we go into this hit therefore more of the heavy lifting this time should be done on fiscal policy or by fiscal policy but what we've seen in the us is that the federal reserve has said that they will provide unlimited help their balance sheet has already risen sharply. So that will underpin the markets. It will provide financing in terms of uh, the corporate sector. But in terms of your question, yeah, the the reality of these situations is that the poorest tend to be hit hardest and those people in jobs that can be cut quickest tend to see their jobs basically go. What we're trying to see though from the US and to some extent from other uh, policymakers in the West is an attempt to try and ensure that this is a temporary hit. But the scale of it is so considerable, namely to the world economy, it's hard to imagine this will be a completely temporary hit. Unfortunately, there may be some permanent impact. But I think the US response has been pretty good in terms of throwing money, Unlimited help from the central bank, but you're right in terms of the distribution aspect of it I think many people are looking at that as a secondary issue But I think Congress is now trying to force through another fiscal package to ensure that some of those issues are addressed
3: Now you're a man you you believe in this economic system. I don't so uh, with that in mind I, I, I pose you this question. Yeah, isn't all this being done with funny money I mean they're just turning the Presses, metaphorically, aren't they? This is not real money, not backed by anything. It's just running uh, more money off the the printing press. What are the consequences likely to be of that?
7: Yeah, well, this is an active debate. It's been an active debate even before this crisis with MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, being talked about within the US in particular. like many theories, what well, economics is a sort of social science. It's not a hard science like physics. And therefore, one has to look at some of these policy stances in terms of the context of the day. I think we're in such a situation now where inflationary pressures are minimal, hence the focus on oil in the last 24 hours with OPEC and non-OPEC countries trying to limit supply and that being seen as a positive thing by many economists and by the markets in order to stop deflationary pressures taking hold. So I think there is the ability, there is the scope for central banks to actually provide direct financing to the government. Um, so-called funny man as you call it, but I wouldn't call it that. I would call it necessary action. But at the same time, in similar respect, but not the same argument, many people have been critical about the use of fiscal policy in the past. I, however, would argue that now is also the time to be proactive in terms of fiscal policy, just because of the slump to the demand and income. But like many of these policy responses, they need to be coordinated. They need to be credible. But also the question is the scale as well. And that very much leads on to your question. I think if we were still asking it in three, six, nine, twelve 12 months time, um, then people might have a more valid reason to be concerned. But when you look at the situation, there is the ability for central banks to be more accommodative in this sort of environment. And there certainly is the scope and the ability for governments to relax fiscal policy more. I think also it should be said that governments should find it relatively easy, despite the scale, to fund much of their spending given that international long-term investors are looking for safe havens, hence bond yields are incredibly low.
3: Finally, and I'm grateful for your time uh, always, Doctor. Uh, What about Britain? What is the likely impact both of the, the devastation that has been caused and the government's response to it, in your view?
7: Well, Britain is a microcosm in some respects of what's happening elsewhere. We have a health crisis and an economic crisis. We really need to overcome the health crisis in order to start to make inroads into the economic crisis so addressing the health issue is one thing addressing the economic problem is another but both almost need to run in tandem here in the uk i think the government has been willing so too is the central bank i think the government's response needs to be less complex shall we say the american response is simpler in terms of getting money out there quicker here in the uk we've not provided the help as quickly to the corporate sector, particularly small firms. So I think the government, even though it's trying to do the right thing and I'm constructive about what they're doing, they need to do more. The central bank here, I think, could take a lesson from the US and provide more unlimited help. Also, I'd like to see the central bank here and indeed other central banks peg long term rates. So there are technical answers to your questions. But what it does do in the UK is I think it reinforces some of the policies that were been talked about before the crisis. There are many parts of the UK economy that are brilliant, first-rate, world-class, but we have a very imbalanced economy. Those imbalances, I think, will become clearer as we come out of this crisis. So, in some respects, it reinforces the need for the UK to focus on what I call all the I's. Investment, innovation, infrastructure spending, incentives, and clearly, the most important I, inequality. So I think that even though we have a key, big problem in the UK, and even though I think the policy response has been good, I think we need to do more on the policy side. We need to make sure that while it's a temporary hit, it doesn't become a permanent hit to the economy. And I think we have a big challenge there. But when we come out of it, I think many of the imbalances that we talked about before the crisis will still be staring us in the face. And in some respects, the policy outlined beforehand needs to become even more apparent after.
3: Always a pleasure, Dr. Gerard Lyons, thanks for joining us on pleasure. the mother of all talk shows. Our own MOTS medic, one of the NHS's heroes, is Dr. Ranjit Brar. Uh, he's an NHS consultant, physician and surgeon. Uh, he is a vascular surgeon in the uh, north of England. Um, he's with me, I hope, on Skype. Dr. Ranjit, uh, welcome back to the show. Let me just put to you what uh, not a few uh, of uh, our listeners, viewers, have said, uh, that actually uh, this is all really a bit of a hoax and that the hospitals are half empty. Your comments, please.
5: Surprised, George, that we're, uh, first of all, nice to be with you. Thanks for having me back again. I'm surprised that we're um, back on that subject, George, the, the, the evidence keeps on mounting from every quarter. It seems very hard to justify the concept that this is not a very real phenomenon. Hospitals have cut down their elective and normal workload. There will undoubtedly be a knock-on effect from that. That will affect the real health and outcome of a large number of patients. But we know there are studies that have come out from China and elsewhere that shows that actually patients who come to hospital at this time are very likely to be infected with coronavirus that patients who undergo surgery and then subsequently showed to have been infected with coronavirus have a much higher perhaps as much as 20 percent mortality rate so this is not a time for undergoing unnecessary procedures what it does show is that you know, it shows up things about our society that we we had been noticing, but in a very acute form. And one of them is just the undercapacity within the NHS. China, whilst dealing with this, didn't have to forego the care of other patients. And it's, again, a great shame, a crying shame, really that. We're unable to cope with both this, yes, high and unusual demand, but unable to cope with so many other health needs simultaneously. And I think this is something that we are going to have to return to and reassess in the way we fund uh, and manage our national health service.
3: Well, if you heard uh, the prime minister's uh, broadcast earlier today, uh, you'll know that you've got probably uh, your biggest fan in uh, the leader of the Conservative Party. Now, you and I both know... Uh, that the Conservatives had to be dragged screaming and kicking into uh, accepting the existence of a National Health Service. We both know that it cuts against uh, their uh, general socio-economic approach to things. They generally believe private is better than public. Uh, but unless he's a gigantic liar, and unless he has no conception that we all tape-recorded his speech and will play it back constantly. Uh, He must know that what he did today was give a gigantic vote of confidence in the NHS which will have to be backed up uh, with uh, hard cash and changes uh, once this is over, don't you think?
5: Um, I would welcome that if that did come about. Um, My experience of 25 years working in the HS of 40 years, 45 years of life in this country, um, makes me skeptical of that, George. We are living in exceptional circumstances. The fact that there's been a massive um, systemic failure of the economic system, a huge crash in the economy, which was triggered, but I, I do not think it's synonymous with this coronavirus. It's a much bigger and uh, systemic phenomenon. It means that governments are looking for exceptional ways to try and prop up the economy and therefore pump money in various ways into the economy. Now, a huge bailout has happened, overwhelmingly to massive companies. I don't know how much. It's Richard Branson asked for $7 billion. I very much hope he doesn't get it. But the news of whether he's got it or not hasn't come to my knowledge. I know that he's applied for it. He's already the largest GP in the country. He's the manager of you know, GP services for 3 to $4 million people in the southeast of england he's the largest private hospital owner um, managing east kent hospitals and putting in bids for other services and suing the nhs when he doesn't get them so this process of privatization is not something which is just um you know conceptual it's something that's very far advanced and to reverse that uh, would be a very major undertaking akin to really the initial founding of the nhs now i very much hope it will happen it would involve either writing off and saying to the pfi companies you've made far too much money out of these, un, you know, totally uncompetitive contracts already, and simply wiping off the debt. That's not in the nature of our government to do. They very much value free market, free enterprise, and despite the evidence of systematic failures in the economy, they will do everything they can to prop up that system. So in other words, they, what they might do is transfer that debt away from the NHS and take it on centrally, which, which would really amount to us still paying for those contracts. It would mean reversal of marketization of the NHS economy, where currently 20% of the NHS budget is spent on uh, managerial uh, payouts, and that's a lot of it is around uh, negotiating contracts, um, because once you buy and sell to yourself, you have to have a process of tendering and uh, and overseeing all of the management and legal uh, services that are involved. It would involve reversing the process of um, putting all the funding, as the NHS Social and Social Care Act 2012 did, of placing all the funding for the NHS in the hands of GPs who are unable actually to plan and manage the service, and currently are merged with you know, KPMG, large accountancy firms, large um, uh, management uh, consultancy firms, who are managing it and increasingly merging with the health insurance lobby. We've seen only once or twice in this entire episode an appearance from Sir Simon Stevens, So Simon Stevens, as I've mentioned to you before, is actually the person who's in charge. He's the chief executive of NHS England who has day-to-day operational control of the NHS. This person, it's a quango that controls, not Matt Hancock, not Boris Johnson, it's a quango that controls the NHS England. And he has said very, very little to say about the lack of preparedness, the steps that are gonna be taken because his overwhelming strategic objective is to push business in the direction of his old manager. And that manager is United Healthcare, It's one of the biggest, in fact, the biggest health insurance company in the United States. And so all of these, you know, opaque details, which are not widely known, despite the fact that this has been going on in a very systematic way for at least 40 years under Labour, Tory, and the the condemned government, they're not widely known. And to reverse that, so I'm absolutely sure as we all feel when we've been treated by the nhs we feel overcome with emotion and joy we feel the joy to be alive we feel the joy that our new babies have been brought into the world that our uh, that our cuts have been mended that our bones have been set that our operations have been performed overwhelmingly successful treatment and despite how run down it is the nhs still provides a fantastic service which is precisely why it's valued by all who use it but is that enough to contradict the entire ethos of the conservative outlook, where it's totally not unusual for backbench MPs to, deno- to denounce the NHS as a Stalinist model of care, which needs to be done away with, to denounce all its inefficiencies which are induced by the way it's managed, as being due to the fact there's not enough market transparency and market efficiency. Will it undo that entire ethos and push Johnson into being a born-again socialist, at least in the sphere of healthcare? Well, see, I hope so. But I'm if I were
3: you, I, I would cut out uh, and keep every word that he spoke today. And if I were the health service trade unions, uh, we haven't heard very much from trade unions in this crisis, uh, but I'd be cutting out and keeping every word. If I was in the opposition, in parliament, uh, I'd be cutting out every one of those words and I'd be holding uh, Boris Johnson uh, to them. Do you think... There's any chance of any of those things happening?
5: Uh, I mean, uh, very few people seem to be, you pointed out yourself in in a video I saw during the week, George, very few people are holding the government to account on their promises. We have so far been promised huge increases in ventilators that haven't been delivered, huge increases in PPE, which are gradually filtering through. We've been promised all the facilities necessary to, to deal with the pandemic. And whilst drastic spe- measures have been taken, are being taken, the fact that there was a lack of preparedness, if I, I look back and was writing an article about this very subject today, George, and really we had the full picture and information emer- emerging in February from China. We've had a good two months to prepare. All of that time was frittered away principally. It was business as, as usual. And again, if you look at the United States response, where they've got a quarter of uh, quarter of cases now. You know, It's business as usual, produ- pursuing the same geopolitical agenda of strategic competitive advantage against their perceived competitors, of pursuing sanctions against Cuba, whilst Cuba gives aid to the world, sanctions against China, whilst China gives aid to the world, sanctions against Iran, while Iran struggles to cope with this problem. So, can the leopard change its spots? You know, I, I have to deeply believe that human beings are capable of change, but I think for us, it's a qu- if we change our government, I do not believe that our current representatives will be the people that we choose to manage those profound changes that are needed in our society.
3: Lastly, and I'm grateful for your time always, I spoke to a doctor, not you, you're usually the doctor I speak to, but I spoke to a different doctor uh, on Saturday, and she told me, Uh, that the anger in the profession uh, is palpable, is raging at the very foolish allegation that Hancock made uh, that somehow you've been wasting uh, PPE, that if there is a shortage, it's because you've been wasting it, misusing it. Are you aware of that uh, feeling of anger?
5: There's a a definite feeling of of anger bordering on betrayal, really, of people who are putting their, I mean, there have been several you know, uh, pieces of data that have come out of analyzing the patients and the staff, um, of showing just how far this virus is spreading, that staff are becoming affected. Actually, bus drivers also are being affected, and, and and disproportionately affected with severe infections, and disproportionately, we've even seen Afro-Caribbean and South Asians disproportionately affected amongst those uh, who are infected and died. Precisely because these are frontline workers, people who are living in overcrowded housing, people who have not been taken out of the community for isolation. So, all of the very basic, some of the public health models that were put forward by China and so successful haven't been learned, haven't been put into effect. So, yes, there is a, there's a lot of anger that people are doing their best. They're really risking their own health in order, in order to provide the best possible treatment for their fellow countrymen, for our fellow workers. But we haven't got the levels of support that we need and promises are made and promises are broken on a daily basis. And that is causing a lot of disillusionment amongst the medical profession and in wider society, George, I think.
3: Uh, Engineer Joe's mum says, Dr Brar for prime minister. There you go. That's one vote you've got for uh, uh, prime minister dr ranjit Bra, that's one vote in the bag uh, dr ranjit thank you very much as always for joining us moats medic i've been surprised at the lack of response to the, what i had to say earlier about this report perhaps it's that most of you have not seen it and when i looked at my phone in the break a number of good friends have sent me the entire copy uh, of the report i know it's tough to read it but everyone must i'd go so far as to say this Joseph, the Labour leadership today is illegitimate, it is an illegitimate regime, it has come to power based on a conspiracy against the previous leadership of the Labour party which is a matter for them uh, but it's a matter for the British people as a whole The stakes could not have been higher in 2017. Less than 2,500 votes would have kicked the Tories out, put Labour and Corbyn in. So many of the problems, suffering, death, that we have since suffered might might have been avoided. So every person who is involved in that conspiracy which is unmasked in this leaked report that Sky News had the only copy of, every person in it is now illegitimized, in my eyes and I think in the eyes, I hope in the eyes of Labour Party members and Labour Party supporters and believers in democracy everywhere. So I'd go so far as to say that the Labour leader and all those involved in that coup against Corbyn in 2016 and in undermining Corbyn all the way up to the 2017 election are illegitimised and I for one will never forgive them. Uh, Mark Burns says, George, what's your take on 5G and its effects on the immune system? Well. I'm not an expert, uh, Mark, uh, but I think it's bollocks. I think the uh, uh, 5G scare uh, runs out of the chemtrails trap. It runs out of all these weird and wonderful conspiracy theories that are multiplying. Uh, The radiation from 5G is minimal. People claimed the same about 4G, they claimed it about 3G, they said we shouldn't be forced to wear seat belts, they said that motorcyclists shouldn't be forced to wear crash helmets. It runs out of that kind of political, philosophical stable and I consider it to be bollocks. Joshua is in London. Let's hear from him. Joshua, go ahead.
0: Oh, hi, George. Hi. Uh, yeah, I was, just, I was just wondering about, on the issue of uh, Russia, about how it has, I mean, its infection rate is, is comparatively lower than ours. Yeah, although it, it's picking
3: up, it is picking up in Moscow. Still, no, uh, no, I know, but still very, very yeah. low compared to ours, yeah.
0: But I was going to say about the death rate... I mean, is it their, I mean, are they, do they really have a better healthcare system than us? Because their life expectancy is a bit lower. Not that I'm trying to admonish them, because I mm. I have an admiration for mm. them. But why is their death rate so much lower? That's what I was going to focus. Uh, that was what I was going sort of, I, you know, to.
3: I, I don't know uh, is the honest uh, answer. Uh, they, uh, as I said, the number of cases is increasing. I spoke to my editor. Uh, RT.com uh, yesterday uh, online, um, talking about my my latest piece, and she said uh, that uh, things were getting a bit more tense in Moscow because uh, most of the cases in Russia, which is as you know a gigantic country with seven time zones, uh, but most mm-hmm. of the cases were in Moscow, and I see some pictures in the paper today of lines of ambulances uh, waiting to get into Moscow hospitals. So. I don't know if they will escape in the way that it looked a week ago that they would escape with very low numbers. Uh, And I don't know if they've got a better health system than us. I think a lot of countries have now got a better health system than us. But whether Russia is one of them, uh, I I don't know. Uh, The the truth is that the life expectancy uh, in Russia is partly to do with the extremely rugged uh, living conditions in many, many parts of the vast country. Uh, the Until recently, high level of smoking, and until recently, very high levels of drinking alcohol. I would guess that they are three reasons why Russia has uh, a lower life expectancy than us. But although I'm a Russian asset, I'm not actually a Russian expert. Over to you, Joshua, one last point.
0: Well, I, I would say it's, it's partly a result of lower population density, but I think also because, and this is when I'm going to praise Putin for his, you know, uh, assertive measures, I do honestly think that his rules, as authoritarian as they may be, are actually having an effect. I mean, they must be. It, it, and I do not buy it. In a country of nearly 150 million people, considering that your, your uh, TV show is, you know, uh, you know, is uh, aligned with RT, as we can see on the screen, you know, I do not believe it, that the Russian media, for all their efforts, could cover up a mass, Uh, A mass uh, mortality uh, of of Russia, thats impossible. uh, Absolutely not. As a
3: matter of fact, uh, uh, media hostile, anti-Putin, anti-government media proliferates in uh, in Russia, and Western journalists are uh, everywhere in Russia. And uh, of course, the secret state uh, of all countries uh, never sleeps. Joshua, thanks very much for that. Let me go to Scott in Glasgow. Go ahead, Scott.
4: Yes yes hello george I, and i realize every second on your show is premium but can i, I briefly repeat um the, the, the words of doctor the brilliant doctor Ranjit, bar the reversing of the nhs privatization will be akin to the foundation of the nhs those words are chilling those words are chilling and he, that guy is absolutely brilliant he is but i'll briefly don't uh, wouldn't it be wonderful brilliant.
3: if he was the minister of health
4: oh god i mean we haven't got a minister of health we've got a minister of Privatisation. It would be amazing if we had actually had a Minister of Health, if it was Dr. Ranchi, oh, bam my God. Anyway, the, the, the point as I say, every, every second is a premium on your show, and I very much appreciate me being on. So, I mean, um, George, you know, uh, Boris Johnson repeatedly asserted the NHS is not up for sale or privatisation, while all the time selling and privatising the NHS. My point is that it's a crime that's been committed here. It's not that he didn't make a mistake or any of the, the other stuff I see online. It, it was no mistake there. He has facilitated the movement from the bottom to the top of money. That's his job, and that's what he's done.
3: Well, to be, now, let's be fair, to, Scott, he's only been the prime minister uh, for a few months.
4: Yes, but he has not been... This apologized. started
3: with Margaret Thatcher, was continued by Indeed. Major, and by Blair, Indeed. and by Brown, and by Cameron, Indeed. and by me.
4: Indeed. Indeed, obviously we knew Thatcher. she started the privatization with the cleaning services. It, was, it, was, it went on from there. And the, rest and the of dinners, but yeah. Po- yes, but my point being, George, that if um, Tony Blair suddenly had an epiphany moment and said, I'm sorry about the deaths in Iraq and I'm sorry about all that happened there, um, can we start again? What would you say?
3: I'd say, what are you going to do? Uh, you, uh, and uh, that's the same thing I'm saying to uh, Boris Johnson. Indeed, I said so in my monologue. Uh, if you're going to now pay the NHS workers fairly, fund their service adequately, uh, bring them wholly back into the public sector, cancel their student debts, if you're going to do all these things, I'll believe your words. If you don't okay. do them, uh, then I'll regard them only as words. Okay. Okay, okay, George. All right. Many thanks, Scott. A very succinct and good call. Now there really isn't enough hanging space in the wall, uh, in the Hall of Fame, uh, this week for all the people we want to honour because there's more than a million and a half of them across the UK. One and a half million people who care for us, who put their lives on the line for us every day, especially now. Some of them, at least some of them least financially rewarded and in the midst of this pandemic are now the most appreciated and rightly so the vast majority of us always knew our national health service was the best thing in our lives those of us lucky enough to live in britain and even those who wanted to privatize it suck its lifeblood, who wanted insurance companies to take it over who've already let in people like richard branson to feed on it have now been forced to praise it through clenched teeth and perhaps a face mask or a respirator. People like Boris Johnson, who, with all but one of his parliamentary Tory colleagues, voted down a pay rise for nurses in 2017, after seven years of real cuts to their wages. Boris Johnson, who campaigned to leave the European Union from a bus which splashed along its sides, promised a further 350 million pounds a week for the NHS, and when this is all over, Boris, we're going to hold you to that. Boris Johnson, whose life last week was saved, as he himself has now said, by the NHS. Health Secretary Matt Hancock, I thought it was Tony, who also caught the coronavirus. He tried to blame frontline staff for the shortage of life-saving personal protective equipment by accusing them of overusing it, changing it too much as if this was some hospital dressing up game. It was the same Hancock who, when asked during the week how many NHS staff had died protecting us from the virus, immediately shuffled the question to the chief nursing officer who refused to give a figure, citing confidentiality. Two days later, Hancock was forced to give the figure. He said it was 19 dead. Although two mortalities have been added to it since then, and actually the figure, according to some, is 32. And more, of course, will follow through the ineptitude of the handling of this pandemic to date. The NHS began, of course, after the Second World War with the election of a Labour government led by Clement Attlee. The minister in charge of it was one of the great labour figures, Aniron Bevan. At its launch by Bevan in 1948, he said it had, at heart, three core principles. That it meets the needs of everyone, that it be free at the point of delivery, and that it be based on clinical need, not ability to pay. And so it remains, largely, until now but if we don't go on to the offensive now and demand that all the ways in which the NHS has been cheapened, has been privatised, has been under resourced, has been distorted from its original principles then we will have missed an enormous opportunity. It's one of the reasons why I hate these flat earth deniers so much. Instead of rising to this set of circumstances which now face us, in which we can make demands which would have seemed utopian and hopeless even a few months ago, we are now in a position to say to the Conservative Prime Minister of Britain. We're going to hold you to every single word you just said about the NHS. And I've given earlier the ways in which I think Boris Johnson can put into deeds the noble and beautiful words that he used in his broadcast earlier. Who would you least like to be isolated with? Donald Trump, 28%. Boris Johnson, 16%. Katie Hopkins, 56%. You can still vote on my uh, Twitter feed. Now, uh, let's uh, leave the rest of the time to calls while I'm waiting for the next one to come up. Uh, George, my wife, Julie, had cancer three times over nine years. I lost her almost five years ago at a number of times in her treatment, particularly during chemotherapy. We were aware that any infection could be lethal. I'm sure coronavirus would have killed her, but it would have been the coup de grace. I understand your road traffic accident analogy. I have to say, though, it would lead to a strange hiatus where terminal illness disappeared. We need more subtlety at this time. And Mushabar says, I've been a fan of yours for many years. Love your passion for speaking the truth. I enjoy the show. I tune in every week. My question is, Why does the government get away with continuing to undercut and neglect the National Health Service? They have known that the NHS has been ill-equipped and vulnerable to such an outbreak for years. John Pilger did a great job of covering this in his recent documentary. Indeed so, John Pilger does a great job of everything. And Paul says... Some hospitals are half empty because all non-emergency procedures have been canceled and the resources are focused on COVID-19. Let's take uh, one of our uh, uh, veteran callers, always worth hearing. It's Guy in Stoke-on-Trent. Guy, welcome.
8: Yeah, happy Easter, George.
3: Happy Easter. Yeah,
8: George, uh, about my local hospital here, it's just up the road, a couple of miles away. Uh, The A&E now is shut at this hospital. There's a big A&E department. Uh, the A&E has been moved to another hospital in the city. Our uh, local hospital now has had three temporary refrigerated morgues added to the on-site morgue. Uh, if there is any diminishing of patients entering that hospital, it's because the resources, the nurses, the doctors, are being used to deal with COVID patients and And finally, I should say that on that hospital, at that hospital, they've now uh, created or built a ward purely to deal with COVID patients.
3: Yeah, I've seen the testimony of uh, nurses and and doctors who have a ward of of 25 uh, COVID patients and the uh, expected mortality rate uh, of them there is about half. I've, I've seen the nurse. Now I, I don't believe these nurses are actors or that they're lying, uh, but it's an amazing number of people seem to think they are. Guy,
8: well, they're absolutely not lying. What I'm trying to say is that if if there are less people entering that yeah. hospital, yeah. it's because the hospital is is focusing. Its resources. Maybe they've got no other resources. That's what Ranjit said. To deal with every other patient, That's unfortunately. Right. Yeah. But yeah. But uh, can I just say something about uh, Boris Johnson and the intensive care? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if Boris Johnson was on a ventilator, he would. No, be he vent- wasn't.
3: He, he, he wasn't on a ventilator. No. He was no. on an um, oxygen uh, tube.
8: Yeah. If he if he if he needed ventilation, he'd have been on ICU. He may have been on ICU. He was but he certainly never no, he got was. ventilated. No, he, he, he never was,
3: got. No, uh, he never got ventilated. It's never uh, been. Uh, it's never been claimed uh, that he got no. uh, ventilated. Uh, and
8: oxygen, but, can, o- yeah. oxygen could have been administrated via nasal clips or even a normal mask. Yeah. But uh, he would probably been put there so as if it was necessary, the facility was there.
3: Yeah. Well, he named, them, he named all these uh, wonderful doctors and nurses in his broadcast today. Uh, and, uh, and I thought it was quite moving, uh, actually. I'm not ashamed to say that. Uh, I'd be ashamed if uh, I didn't call him out if he refused to follow up with action, uh, because uh, words are cheap. Uh, when somebody's just saved your life, uh, it's, uh, it's good that you should thank them so fulsomely. Uh, But if you then walk by on the other side of the road, uh, ignoring what they need from you, then you're a grade A, aren't you? Can can I suggest that
8: Keir Starmer's medal is presented to Boris and the NHS staff get funded, get PPE, get ventilators, get a pay rise and get accredited?
3: Excellent. Good good policy. Thanks, Guy. (laughs) Let's go to Hamid in London. Hamid?
9: Yeah, hi. I Just uh, talking about the NHS, I uh, wanted to refer to this is uh, basically the Milton Friedman economics, which came in in the 70s yeah. from the Chicago School of Economics. Yeah. They experimented with it in Chile, as you know, with the coup uh, against yeah. the socialist government. And then Mrs. Thatcher brought it in with Keith Joseph in Britain in the 80s, as you know, privatization. Unfortunately, I lived,
3: I lived through it all, Hamid. Yes, go on. Yeah,
9: so I, I did. I remember I was at university, people were buying shares and queuing up to buy shares in BT with 50p and uh, selling them on for one pound 50. The same with the water companies and then the trains later, which then came back, they sold all the assets off and then they came back for subsidies, like Mr. Branson, he was getting subsidies on Virgin Trains. For years and years and years
3: oh, Yeah, they get, uh, they get three times the public money subsidizing them than British Rail uh, received when the railways were publicly owned.
9: Yes, that's why I was a little bit upset when you said you would support Tony Blair if he came back and he said X and Y. Uh, he, he, uh, because I, he, he was fundamentally I, 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 I wrong really, and he was in the pocket of these people. I really,
3: I really didn't say that. Uh, I said that I'd say to him, Well, what are you going to do about the sins that you have uh, committed? What are you going to do about them? God doesn't forgive God. Well, that's Iraq, right. Chinese. That's right. Exactly.
9: And the other point I had, I'm sorry to say, you know, your uh, Hall of Fame. Yeah. I disagree with uh, Bernie Sanders being put in there. But Bernie Sanders, although. I think what he does, he takes away the energy which would go into a third party or protest, and he kills it off by these presidential campaigns. Well, that, that is, uh, yeah, yeah it, that, that's so a good point. My, uh, no, yeah. I need to
3: press on because of the hour. Sure. But it's but a very he good... He
9: said, I support Joe Biden. He said, I would support him. Yeah, yeah. He's a friend of mine. i tell, tell
3: you what, Hamid. Uh, we will give consideration to removing Bernie Sanders from the Hall of Fame. There you go. I'll let you know next week the result of that consideration let's go to tess in london go ahead tess hi george it's tess uh, wales not london ah it says london um, here i beg your pardon go ahead oh, Tess.
1: Bless him. anyway um yeah you've had some uh, some traggles calling in tonight you know your conspiracy chums yes and um i've got a couple of them in real life and i've sort of fallen out with them and and sometimes they can be quite fun in a way and but at the moment they're really I'm not finding everything. it
3: funny at all, no. No,
1: no, I know. And I think, I think what's happening with these people, a lot of them are quite clever people in real life. And I think their, their energy is really misguided here. And I think it's all to do with trust. You know, nobody trusts their government no, that's anymore. Right. And, and know, and imagine that, in that, war like, exactly, no, not...
3: You're, <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. Uh, nobody yeah, in, trusts in the their war, government because what? the government has lied to them over and over and over again. And so the credibility of the state, its agencies, uh, its governments is a, 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 an all-time low. So um, people don't believe things even when they're true. No, exactly. But they need to move that energy
1: along and, and use it to exactly. do good stuff for the NHS like we've been talking about tonight. And they need to listen to Ranjit. And it's absurd. They won't listen to Ranjit, right? I keep trying to get them to watch his stuff. And they say, no, 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 because he's part of the narrative. Yeah, and yeah, I've we're all, we're all
3: gatekeepers, even Dr. Ranjit Yeah, yeah, Bra, you're, are, you're, 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 the, you're the worst out of all of them, mate. You're, you're. Yeah, I'm uh, the gatekeeper. I'm actually secretly working for capitalism, for imperialism all this time. Yeah. And it's been such an ill-rewarded uh, quest, I must say. Tess, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Chris is in Colchester. On Bernie Sanders. Let's hear from him. Chris.
10: Hi, George. All right?
3: Yeah, good. Thank you.
10: Um, yeah, it, I did say I did tell you so about Sanders. I mean, I always said he was a fraud. Um, uh, yeah, um,
3: you, you, you turned out to be right and I turned out to be wrong. My apologies.
10: Well, I, no, no, it's fine. I mean, I, there's enough misery at the moment. So I'm not, you know, I just think we've just got to pay attention to what a politician does and not what he says. Um, you know, I think he's less integrity than than Corbyn, and uh, people like him and AOC, they just they're all theatre. They all they've got the talk, but they don't walk the walk. I'm afraid, and uh, I just can't believe uh, that Donald Trump is around, sort of, even money to win the presidency still. So, you
3: it's know, amazing, amazing isn't it? It's absolutely amazing.
10: Yeah, and I, I, yeah. I, I, I had this hunch that Michelle Obama would be the the VC, uh, the vice president. Uh, nomination from Biden, but it, it doesn't seem to be going. Right. So I think it could be Hillary Clinton. And would it surprise you to, to, if they just said, "Look, Biden's not competent," and at the last minute they just put someone like Clinton in? It, it, wouldn't it wouldn't surprise, surprise me.
3: me. No, uh, um, I think that would be the most risky thing for them to do. Uh, but it's not impossible. They could put Cuomo as the VP and then do that, or or uh, Michelle Obama. I think that. be a that. woman. Yeah. I, I think
10: it'll be a woman and, you know, then that's Hillary's perfect chance. She's got a corpse is the only thing to stop her from becoming present. I mean, she'd they're, soon they're... be rid
3: of him I'll tell you that. Chris I know. <laughs> she, she'd push yeah. him off uh, off a bridge before you could say Jack <laughs> Robinson. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Chris, for that call. I need to go to Gibraltar, where Al is on the line. Go ahead, Al.
8: Yes, I'm, I'm very good, George. Yes, are you okay yourself?
3: Yes, I'm great. Good to hear from you. Go ahead.
8: Yeah, I'm just uh, very quick point. That, um I firmly believe this whole thing um it, it's it's part of a, a major economic war between the uh the Chinese uh the US and the Western world. Um and that, you know, the, the Chinese government, what have basically just done by allowing this uh this this pathogen, if you like, to spread globally is they've they, they created a, a massive crime against uh, humanity worldwide, and they should, be, they should be called to account. But what about an economic war?
3: How do you stop is, a, a virus uh, spreading, Al? I beg your pardon? How do you stop a virus spreading?
8: We don't know, do we? We don't know. No, but you other. just
3: blame China for uh, spreading it across the world. Well, they're they allowed when they closed well, we the roof. But for, you're using the word allowed, I'm saying to you, Uh, how would you not allow a pathogen, a deadly virus, how would you stop it?
8: I I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a specialist in that area. Perhaps I used the wrong word, but what we did do, which was wrong, when they closed Wuhan down, they allowed uh, international flights to leave Wuhan and thus the spread took place.
3: Well, it was up to the people uh, to whom these aeroplanes flew to say they wouldn't take any calls. Uh, any flights uh, from Wuhan? Surely.
8: Yeah, but the, the, the Chinese knowing the, 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 the gravity of. The well, situation
3: they, they, they didn't just—they know. They told you. They told everybody. At the end of December, they reported it. Then they yeah, mapped the. No, then George, they marked the genome and George, gave it to everybody free.
8: George, George, they told everybody at the end of December. When were the first cases? Because when they first come to light, the end of well, the- Well, I event. don't
3: know, uh, that's actually a moot point, and it's now becoming a subject of great academic and investigative interest about where exactly and when exactly these first cases emerged. I think you might find that your ire for China is misplaced, Al, but thanks for the call. Frank is in Dumbarton from one rock to another rock. Dumbarton rock. <laughs> go ahead, Frank. Hi, George. Hi. Hail, hail. How are you doing, there? Good. Nice to hear no from you. To, I've not spoke
8: to you since you used to walk to that parochial station. Yeah, I the local when, on I I was on local
3: when I was on local radio, yeah.
8: Yeah, yeah. I, I used to pick you up on AM or something like that. But anyway, I'm not going to waste I just what I was want to say, was, like, I'm going to have a mess carry on the media. I, I think they're all this a. And clapping out of windows and gym sessions and houses and all that, it's just to take my mind off of what's really going on. And it uh, really annoys me. The one is all clapping from the NHS, right? And then from the they government, they're begging ball, you know, they're shutting their doors and their windows, you know what I'm talking about. You know, well, uh, so the one me...
4: I'm
3: clapping, I,
8: I'm, I, I'm,
3: I, I'm clapping Frank out my window, and so no, is every person uh, on my street.
8: Yes, and again, they all George mm. DHS, a brilliant night. They always after my mum and dad, Goddress them. They they could even be better. Right, I love them so much. But what they're actually asking today, the media is, is applying, is applauding for the government? Oh, no, no. That's no! no
3: <laughs> that would be a big ask, especially in Dumbarton. Nobody's going to applaud the government. Uh, that much uh, I'm absolutely sure of. Frank, you need to get off the line, because there's a legend. Just appeared. It's Norma in Bristol. And she wants more time tonight, so what she wants, she gets. Go ahead, Norma.
1: I don't know, George. No, it's just two points, really. Um, And it's not moaning tonight. It's about ventilators. Now, I hope this is true, but uh, CND and General Electric workers. Now, General Electric workers, I've got this quoting off Twitter, which isn't always true, but I hope it is. Um, they normally make jet engines, and they say that their facilities are lying idle at the moment. And, well, the country faces a dire shortage of ventilators. And the workers have launched a protest for them to make ventilators. And the second point on ventilators is CND. <coughs> Excuse me, i got a cough. And, um, they said that um, it was on April the 9th that nuclear weapons contractor is destined to make 10,000 ventilators. Now, I don't know whether I really believe it, but it does prove that um, maybe with Trident that the can, money can be diversified a little bit. And general electric workers, you know, they want to use their skills. I hope they're able to do it. Um,
8: Have you heard anything about this? Well, I I, I have been
3: uh, proselytizing uh, this point all of my life. The number of jobs uh, that you would generate uh, by diversifying uh, defence industry, workers and capital uh, is multiple, ten times more. You'd get ten times more jobs if you use these men, women and equipment to do better and more necessary things. So for those who say, well, we, we have to be an arms dealer to the world, because uh, look at who uh, would be unemployed, the number that would be unemployed if we stopped being it. Uh, but, of course, uh, the, the multiplier uh, of alternative uh, employment is considerable uh, indeed. But on the question, Norma, of ventilators, mm. Britain received this week donations of three hundred ventilators from Turkey. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, and I mean no disrespect to mm. Turkish people at all. But when were we, when did we become in such a powerless place that we needed donations okay. of medical equipment from Turkey? Well,
9: do you see my yes. point?
1: I do. But I mean do you see the point I am trying to make is that General Electric workers, they really have made a protest. They've launched this one to make more. Good. And the other thing is the CND. Apparently, they want to do it, diversify into it. I just hope they do, because this is going to last a long time, isn't it?
3: Alas, alas. Now, you lay off the cigarettes, won't you? I don't want you coughing uh, your way through these uh, interviews. No. Thank you. (laughs) Norma the legend, thanks very much. Who would you least like? to be isolated with. Donald Trump, 28%. Boris Johnson, 16%. Katie Hopkins wins it out of the park. 1,208 of you voted, 56% of you had the good taste to less like to be isolated with Katie Hopkins than either of the others. Jane A uh, says that she'd least like to be isolated with Keith Starmer. Steve says Diana Abacus. Who's Diana Abacus? It's Diane Abbott. Uh, Tom G says Putin. Uh, Stuart H says Owen Jones, but that would not be a nightmare. Uh, Very, very funny indeed. Let me try and get in some last minute messages. Uh, Craig says, what are your thoughts on the increase in employers advertising for zero hour contract essential workers at these times? I believe that zero hour contract working should be illegal. Uh, Chakita says, Boris is a boring clown. Katie and myself would agree on a lot. We would just disagree on who is to blame. And I'm sure Trump would have a lot of interesting stories too. I think Trump would like to get you into isolation, Chakita. Danny says, I think Boris Johnson would be the most tolerable. Katie Hopkins come last. I find her vile. Donald will probably be entertaining. For the first five minutes then get extremely annoying. But at least you'd get to the bottom of the secret of his tan and his uh, hairdo. Is that hair real? Is he really that tanned? How long does he spend oranging himself up and fitting his rug every morning? I don't know I'm only saying. Uh, Paul says the poll is unfair. Can we have an all three Option And Jim says surely if this virus has done one thing it, is, it has established that the NHS is irreplaceable. Boris Johnson himself has endorsed the brilliance and excellence of our healthcare system. The private sector does not belong anywhere near our jewel in the crown. I tend to agree with you on that Jim. Uh, maybe I'm uh, being overly optimistic. Uh, but the devil is of course in the detail. And we have to make sure that that detail is a widely known and if known, supported and that we somehow generate the political opposition necessary uh, to force the prime minister to implement it. Uh, Broken 76 says uninformed George about the coronavirus and Brian H. I used to think George was unbiased. Now I know he's not. I'm gutted. I'm totally biased, Brian. I always have been totally biased. Uh, Ellie Taylor says Bill Gates is in cahoots with Mark Zuckerberg. What's that meant to mean? Stevie G Wiz says Gigi is scared of Ofcom. Stevie G Wiz Ofcom has no power over this broadcast. You see, when you're into the world, the tangled world of conspiracy theories, you're left thinking Why is George Galloway disagreeing with me? It cannot be because he disagrees with me. It must be because he's afraid of Ofcom. Except Ofcom don't regulate internet broadcasting. Stevie, gee whiz. It's been marvelous for me. Hope it was for you, and if it was, come back next week. At the same time, same place. Good night.